All right, let's talk about Isaiah 62 to 66. Isaiah 62 to 66 is finishing up its last and, and the final section, two major sections to the book. That is the judgment from God, the Assyrian period, and comfort from God, the hope for troublesome time, and the remnant returns. And we're in this section that we started last time on the future glory. I don't have a section in your handout for what passages deal with the mess or messianic. And that's because our answer would be all of it. Now, there's not, that doesn't mean every verse does, but basically, if you wanted to uh, highlight the section, you'd highlight this whole section of 62 to 66. It is messianic. So if you're marking those sections, you might just mark 62 to 66 as being messianic. That whole section is messianic. Now, we'll, we'll dis distinguish some of the, the variation as we go along. So we're in this section called Future Glory. The focus is, and you're looking for this in your handout, the focus is on spiritual Zion. And as the prophet has done throughout, he talks about the present condition in contrast to the future. Now there are times that he must be alluding to the future and they're coming back from Babylonian captivity, which hadn't even happened yet. That is, the captivity hasn't even happened yet. But ultimately he's pointing to the future under the Messiah. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on is spiritual Zion and spiritual, uh, the glory of spiritual Zion. Now here's what we're going to see in these chapters. Chapter 62 is simply called Promises and Assurance to Zion. Chapter 63, the first 14 verses, we set to itself God's loving kindness. And then we break that at verse 15 for this reason because there is a prayer and God's answer. And there's three things there. There's the prayer they offer, their confession for sin, their plea for mercy, and their confession of sin, and then God's response to that. And so that begins at six, uh, 63, 15 and goes through the end of 65. So all of 64, part of 63, and all of uh, 65 fit into that section. Chapter 66 is the final rebuke and promise. It's fitting that he ends the book on that because that's what the book is about, is rebuke and promise. And there is the rebuke for a nation in sin, chapters 1 to 39. There's the promise from chapter uh, 40 on and the hope that is in, in the Messiah. So let's look at the, the promises and assurance, chapter 62. Now 62 deals with these two things, promise and assurance. Three things happen here, and we're going to subdivide each one of these sections, that God's not going to rest until He brings salvation to Zion. And we see that in verses 1 to 5. Then we see God's protection for Zion, chapter 62, 6 to 9, and then 10 to 12, the proclamation to get ready for salvation is coming. So let's look at verses 1 to 5 now. Uh, there is some discussion among students and commentators about chapter 62 as to, whether, as to who is speaking. Is Isaiah speaking? Of course, Isaiah is recording this, obviously, and writing it. But is the voice that's supposed to be speaking, is it Isaiah? Or is it Jehovah, God the Father, or is it the Messiah? It seems to me that the Father uh, being is most likely the one that's speaking, if you think it's someone else or that it's the, the, the Messiah. I don't know that any injustice is done, but it makes sense that it's the Father to me. So here's what we're going to see now. God's not going to rest until He brings salvation to Zion, verses 1 to 5. First of all, verse 1, God will not hold His peace. In other words, He's not going to sit idle until His plan to bring salvation is fulfilled. 
And so God's not going to let up until that's accomplished. Let's get that in verses, uh, verses 1 to 5. Now verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. And so God's not going to rest. I'm not going to sit idle until this is accomplished. I'm going to bring salvation. This is talking about, obviously, the Messiah that we've been talking about since chapter 53. Now, look at verse 2, following the second one. The Gentiles will see the righteousness that's brought in. Now, this is interesting. Let me footnote here to suggest that when, when the Pharisees objected to the, and the Judaizing teachers re, rejected the gospel, and they didn't think it ought to go to the Gentiles, but yet they claimed to believe in the prophets, they had missed the message of the prophets because the prophets had clearly said, we've seen several times already, the Gentiles. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and they shall be called by a new name. So what I'm seeing in that, the Gentiles are going to see the righteousness. The, the prophecy of the Gentiles being attracted uh, was fulfilled when, when Cornelius became, um, uh, became the first Gentile convert in Acts chapter 10. That's going to be important to remember here in just a minute. The third thing is that a new name will be given. Now let's get the wording here and then we'll, we'll make a reference to a couple of other passages with reference to that. And they should be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. It's a great deal of discussion as to whether that's talking about the name Christian. Uh, but whatever this is talking about, it's a name that's given by the mouth of the Lord. It's not a name given in derision. God's people sometimes are given names in derision uh, and ridicule. But this is the name that's going to be given by the mouth of the Lord. Uh, I want to think that it refers to the name Christian. And so, and so what would be the connection? Well, in Acts chapter 10, we have the first Gentile convert. Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, they were called by a new name. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That was a new name because that was the first time that name was used. And so that's after the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles are seeing the righteousness, verse 2. They're called by a new name. That follows that, and it's called by the mouth of the Lord. Well, the word called in Acts 11 means by divine calling. Not that they were called Christians in ridicule, but it's by divine calling. It's the same word used in Romans 7. She shall be called an adulteress. God called her that. And God called them Christians, and this is given by the mouth of the Lord. I think there's pretty good evidence that this is talking about the name Christian, though many think that it may not be, and I'll leave that to you. Now, if you want to make a cross-reference over to chapter 66, uh, we're going to see this, this kind of thing again a little bit later uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 66. Um, well, I've lost my verse here. Um, in verse Isaiah 66, I thought it was verse 2, but we'll come to that a little bit, uh, a little bit later. Uh, we're going to see the, the idea of, of a name being given uh, a little bit later in, um, I'm confusing verse 2 here with the one over in chapter 60, uh, 66. Uh, no, it's not chapter 66, 65 in verse 15. They'll be called by another name. Uh, that is, is the question, uh, question perhaps more than Isaiah 66 too, but another name and a new name, you might connect those two verses together. 65, 15, and 62, and in verse 2. All right. Then we see that Zion will be, be a crown of glory. This is just a description of the salvation that's given. Go on to verse 4. No longer would Zion be called forsaken. Now you're looking for this in your, um, in your handout. Verse 4, no longer will they be called forsaken, nor will your land be termed desolate. It'll be called Hephzibah. And that word Hephzibah simply means my delight is in her. 
and Beulah, your land will be called Beulah, and that simply means married. Now what's the significance of that? For the Lord delights in you and your land shall uh, be married. In other words, there, there's going to be glory. Don't make too much of the, the phrases. Uh, it's it's uh, using some symbolism to describe the glory that's going to have descriptive of the period of salvation, the time that we're in. Uh, so God's delight's going to be there. They're going to be married. Uh, no longer will they be called forsaken. And then notice it, verse 5, to wind that up, God will rejoice in them. Now God's not rejoicing in the nation at the present because they're in sin and they put their trust in, in other things other than Him. But notice He ends verse 5, so your God shall rejoice over you. Uh, and uh, so what's, what's the picture? Uh, well, the picture is that just as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, then God rejoices over you. So here's the picture in verses 1 to 5. God's not going to rest until he ushers salvation in, talking about the period of the Messiah. It's going to be, include the Gentiles. There'll be a new name. There's going to be glory. They're no longer going to be forsaken. No longer will God not rejoice in them, but God will be rejoicing in them. Now let's move on to verses 6 to 9. In 6 to 9, God's protection for Zion is found here. There is watchmen set to watch day and night. Watchmen are set to watch day and night. So God promises to protect Zion. That's the people of God. That's us. And uh, they will not be threatened like Israel of old. Now what does it mean? Well, Israel of old, for example, were threatened by Syria. Syria could come in and take them. Same thing is true concerning Babylon. It's going to happen. But now God's going to protect Zion, the people of God. That's us. That's the New Testament. Uh, people of God. This is the day of the Messiah. God's going to bring uh, protection. How does he do so? Well, look at verse 6. I have set watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem who shall never hold their peace. You shall make mention of the Lord and do not keep silent and give him no, uh, give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a, a praise of the earth. Now, what's the point of the watchman? Well, the watchman here suggests that God promises to set protection for his people night and day. Now, what does that refer to? I'm not sure. It may include the apostles. That may include New Testament prophets. It may include elders. It may include any Christian who is set for the defense of the gospel. In other words, during this time of the Messiah, God's going to set watchmen to watch them and protect them day and night. Well, Titus 1, we just studied recently that God set elders in the church to watch for souls. That's part of the watchman. Apostles were part of the watchman. New Testament prophets were part of the watchman. Every godly Christian who tries to help those that are taken in a fault, Galatians 6.1, are in a sense a watchman. And so perhaps all of those may be included uh, in that. Now notice the faithful shall petition God. Now notice at verse 6b through, uh, um, through 7, you shall make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent, give him no rest, and give him... Uh, no rest till he establishes, until he make Jerusalem a praise of the earth. In other words, make petition to God. Uh, that is, the people of God can make petition. I think that would be parallel to praying without ceasing. So here's the protection that God is placing. Now I want you to think about this just for a moment, because this is a point we miss when we come to Ephesians 6. So God has set watchmen for protection, but God has set prayer as part of the protection. So one of the things you're looking for in your handout is something is a, in one of the boxes is a part of the protection that God has given His, his uh, given design that is His church is prayer. 
And so why do I mention that? Well, in Ephesians 6, putting on the whole armor of God, you put on the breastplate of righteousness and take with you the sword, the helmet of salvation, etc. And then verse 18 mentions prayer. And I think in listing the armor, we list all the armor and leave out the prayer. Prayer, though it's not given a parallel, like it's par uh, parallel to a breastplate or to a helmet, it's just mentioned it's one of the tools and part of the armor of fighting against the wiles of the devil. And so part of the protection of God's people is that we can petition our God. Uh, there's a very practical thing, a uh, lesson to be learned from that. Now look at verses 8 and 9 to finish that section. They'll not be invaded by, by others. Uh, won't read every word, but notice the Lord has sworn by his right hand and the arm of his strength, showing that indeed God is a strong God. Surely I will no longer give your grain and food to your enemies, and your sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. Well, Israel would labor for something, and then maybe Assyria would come in and take it. Uh, they labor for something, and then Babylon comes in and takes it. Uh, not, not anymore. Not under the Messiah. Not under the, uh, the, uh, the new Zion. That's not going to take place. And so God is going to uh, provide for them, and they're not going to be invaded by others. Now notice verse 9, that the fruits of the city are for those that are within Zion. Uh, but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord and those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. So those who partake of the fruits of, uh, for his people have to be within Zion, within the, within the family of God. Now let's move on and finish then this chapter. And this is, gets us down to the end of the chapter. Now the proclamation to get ready for salvation is coming. Now, again, this is talking about the day of the Messiah. It has to be, I think, that this is talking about the day of of the Christ. Now notice the phrase at verse 11, and we'll come back and get verse 10, right in the middle of verse 11, surely your salvation is coming. I think that's talking about salvation through the Messiah. Now notice at verse 10, uh, go, through, go through the gates, prepare the way of the people, build up, build up your highways, take up the stones, and lift up the banner of the people. In other words, let, make preparation. Uh, many are going to enter in design. It's going to be open, verse 2, according to even the Gentiles. Make everything ready for salvation is coming. It's going to be make the road and the preparation ready. Now, verse 11 and 12 announce to the world that salvation is coming. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, salvation is coming. Uh, now, notice verse 12, what the people will be called. You're looking for this in your handout. The people who make up Zion are going to be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out. And perhaps you could even add a fourth, though I don't list it as one, a city not forsaken. Um, so that's what they're going to be referred to. All right, now that describes God's people, Zion, spiritual Zion. So, so how does that fit with reference to us? Well, let's start with the bottom, a city not forsaken. Uh, Jerusalem was forsaken. Uh, God allowed the enemy to come in and destroy it. But that's not true of spiritual Zion, spiritual Jerusalem uh, now. Now notice again, they're called a holy people, a redeemed of the Lord. They're bought back and sought out. That perhaps describes people who've been set apart for the service of God. That's what we're supposed to be set apart. We're sought out. We're uh, redeemed. We're the holy people of God. We're set apart for his service and for uh, rendering praise and honor unto God. So here's promises and assurance. 
So how is that promise? The promised salvation is coming. The assurance is God's going to provide protection for them. And uh, that's assurance not so much to Israel of old. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm benefiting from this. This is a promise to us. We are the recipients of this promise, and we are the recipients of this assurance. And so Old Testament Israel didn't fully understand what this was all about, but we do because we are the recipients of it. And so this is an assurance to us. Let's go to chapter 63, 1 to 14 now. The focal point is on God's loving kindness. Let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 7, and you might underline, and this is why I know this is what this is talking about. You might underline at verse 3, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord. And then at the end of verse 7, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. So this whole section is talking about the loving kindness of the Lord. So two things are going to happen in this. God's loving kindness means he will punish the enemy nations. Now, again, let me footnote. All throughout the prophet, and if you haven't got used to this already, you're you're probably already lost. But the prophet does this. He will talk about present Israel or Judah and then jump back to the future under the Messiah. Come back to present Israel. Go back to the Messiah. Come back to present Israel. Jump back and forth. And you say, I don't like that. I didn't write the book. I just, I'm just telling you what it does. Uh, that sometimes can be confusing, I recognize. But what he's done, he's come back now to present Israel. God's loving kindness means he's going to punish the enemy nations. But I think perhaps blended in with that means he's going to punish those that are opposed to God even in the days of the New Testament period. But be that as it may, let's go with verses 1 to, to 14. Now, um, notice he mentions Edom here. Who is he who comes from Edom? Now, Edom, let's stop and talk about Edom. You're looking for this in your handout. Where they were the descendants of Esau. But seemingly here, it stands for any and all enemy nations. God does that often. He will talk about Edom, or he may talk about Egypt, or he may talk in, in places about Babylon standing for not just one nation, but all of them. And you say, well, why why would you say that? And how did you arrive at that conclusion? It makes little or no sense when Edom is not the threat at the moment to mention God dealing with Edom when Assyria has been the biggest threat and now Babylon is going to be the biggest threat and beyond that, Persia is going to be the biggest threat that he mentions God taking care of Edom. Edom's not a threat. So he must be using Edom as a reference to nations that are the enemies of God's people. But now let's, let's, let's look at another point. We're looking for this. Who is the one that came from Edom? Well, here's the picture. Um, who is he that comes from Edom, whose dyed garments from Basra, that's one of the cities of Edom, and one who is in glorious, who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. So who are we talking about? We're talking about God. The picture is not literally God traveling, God wearing a garment. God doesn't wear a literal garment. But it's like God has been to Edom. And he's coming back from Edom. Who is the one coming back from Edom? Well, he's coming in all of his glory and all of his strength. Well, that's God. That's God. And his garments, what are they like? Look at verse 2. Ah. Well, it's God who said, look at the end of verse 1, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, that describes God. 
Well, notice at verse 2, why is your garment apparelled red and your garment like one who treads the wine presses? It looks like his, his garment that he's wearing, a picture someone coming back from Edom, and he, his garment is as red as it can be and looks like he's just walked out of the wine press. It is so red. And he said, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the people who uh, was with me, and I've trodden them in my anger. I've trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. What you see in wine, it's, it's blood. I've been to Edom and I trampled them with, and, and their blood is splattered on me, he says. And I trampled them in my fury. For the day of my vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked and there was no one to help me and I wondered and there was no one to uphold. Therefore, by my own arm, I brought salvation for me and by my own fury, it sustained me. I fought this battle myself. There was no one to help me. I have trodden, verse 6, down the peoples of my anger and made them drunk in my fury. So here is a picture of God coming back from Eden with blood-stained garments. That's a picture that God's loving kindness, which he's going to talk about at verse 7, means he will punish the enemy nations. Here's a footnote. Not in the workbook, but this is a footnote for now. And that is, we often hear someone say, I want to hear more about God's love. I don't want to hear about God's wrath. I don't want to hear about doom and destruction. I don't want to hear all of that. I don't want to hear negativity. I want to hear something positive of his grace. Did you see what, what, what he's done here in this context? To talk about God's loving kindness means he'll punish the enemy. If God doesn't punish the enemy like Edom, he doesn't truly love those that are righteous. And if he truly loves the righteous, he's going to punish those that are not righteous. So any reference to God's fury, God's wrath, God's anger, God's punishment is a statement of his loving kindness. Make sense? It is a statement and affirmation of his loving kindness. Well, let's go further. Let's start at verse 7 now. We're at 63, 7. I will mention loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon me. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he bestowed. And so God is to be praised, is the point of verse 7, for his loving kindness. According to the multitude of his loving kindness, verse 7. So God has not just a little loving kindness, he has a, he has a, a truckload of, of loving kindness is the picture. So God's to be praised. Now then, you're looking for this in your handout. And you're looking for these three points. The reason for praising God for his loving kindness. Here they are. Let's start at verse 8. God chose them. Surely you are my people, children who will not lie. So he is their Savior. In other words, I chose you as my people. That's every reason to praise God for his loving kindness. Because he chose them as his people. Now then, the next thing is verse 9. In their affliction he was afflicted. Your footnote says that some of the ancient uh, translations, like the uh, um, Septuagint said, not afflicted. So what's the point? Without getting into the textual criticism, I'm more interested in just what I think the thrust of the passage is, and I think the point is that he bore their affliction, probably a reference to their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And so God's loving kindness to his people, he's going to punish the enemy nations, and so we ought to praise him for his great loving kindness. Well, why? He chose him, he bore their affliction, 
And furthermore, even though they rebelled, verse 10, let's get the rebellion, verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and they turned, so he turned himself against them as an enemy. Well, that happened in the wilderness, didn't it? That happened when they came into Canaan. And he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. In spite of their rebellion, verse 10, verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, to finish that section, is this simply, and we're going to go back and get the details, is simply saying even though they rebelled, his mercy was still there. I tell you what, that's, that's powerful. That's a powerful message. Even though people rebel, God still has mercy. Conditional, but it's mercy. Look at verse, verse 11. He remembered in the days of old Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought him up out of the sea and the shepherd of the flock? And where is he that put the Holy Spirit within them and led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them at the everlasting name? What's, what's the point that he's making? The point he's making is that um, even though they rebelled, God showed mercy and he remembered the days of old when he showed mercy in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. The mercy that was shown in the wilderness. The mercy that was shown uh, once they got into the land of Canaan. Now notice, to finish that section, uh, who led them through the deep as horses in the wilderness. That's an interesting phrase. He, they led, he led them through the deep. In other words, he led them through the sea. Like horses walking in the desert. Horses walking in the desert kick up a lot of dust. Horses walking in the desert have no trouble crossing the land. God crossed his people through the river just like they were horses in the desert. Now you think about that. These were people who had rebelled and yet he was merciful to them anyway. And then finally, verse 14 says that God would give them a glorious name. And uh, as a beast goes through the valley, the Spirit of the Lord causes him... Uh, him to rest, so you led your people and to make of yourself a glorious name. All right, so that's the loving kindness of God. It means he punishes the enemy nation, and furthermore, his kindness was remembered. God ought to be praised for that. And here's the reason for that praise are these three reasons that, that you have seen. That gets us through verse 14. Let's pause just a moment. Let me see if we've missed anything on our handout that we, I haven't mentioned for you. Um, if you didn't get the reference on the, the new name at the top of your handout, that should be uh, Acts 11.26 and Cornelius, after the conversion of Cornelius. All right, let's move on. Um, let's go through to uh, chapter 63, verse, 60, uh, verse 15, and go all the way through the end of chapter 65. So we're going to cover... In this third segment, three things. Here's a plea for mercy, a confession of their sin, and then there is the Lord's answer. So uh, we're looking for that Lord's answer. If you're looking for that on your handout, and you'll see uh, that in just a moment. Uh, uh, and we'll get to that. All right, let's pick up now at uh, 63 and 15. Here is a plea for mercy. The, the Israel makes a plea for mercy before God. And I want you to notice that, um, and you're looking for this in your handout, their plea states as if God's mercy has been restrained. They're looking as if, it looked at verse 15 as if God's mercy had been restrained. Now there are four things I want you to notice about this plea for mercy. Um, 
Verse 15, the request is to, to look down from heaven and see your habitation. In other words, look down on your people uh, and it seems as if you have restrained your mercy and uh, you say, that sounds like that's a complaint against God and I'm going to tell you that I think it's not because in this context they come back and say the reason is we've sinned. But it's worded as if you've restrained your mercy from us. So look down from your, uh, upon your habitation and give us mercy. Look at verse 16. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel did not know and acknowledge us, O Lord, you are our father. In other words, you are our God. Abraham and Jacob and others did not live long enough to be of any help to us, and they can't help us, but God is our father. He's our redeemer. He's the one that can help us. So that's a plea for mercy. The third thing that's mentioned in verses 17 to 19 is, is we become like those that did not know God. Look at verse 17. That you made us stray from your ways. Now God didn't make us stray, but he allowed that. That's the sense. I think it's parallel to the principle of Matthew 6, 13. And hardened our heart from your fear. God didn't harden their heart, but God allowed their hearts to become hardened uh, is the point. And notice at verse 19, we have become like those of old who never, whom you never ruled, and those who never called your name. Have mercy upon us because we've become like those that didn't even know God. Now that ends chapter 63. Let's go to 64. Verses 1 to 4 says, make your presence known to us. Notice at verse, verse 1, that you would come down. In other words, make your presence known. As a fire burns and causes water to boil, that you may make your name known to your adversary, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Uh, we want you to make your presence known like a fire burning through the forest and make nations tremble um, and have mercy upon us at the end of verse 4. Um, Since the beginning of the world men have heard and nor has ear, uh, nor have they perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you. In other words, there's no other God that's ever been seen or known but you. So come down and let your presence be known. So here's a plea for mercy. That's all that says in those I believe it's nine verses. I think your workbook will say four verses or five. It's actually nine verses. Uh, from 15 to 64 and verse 4 is simply, here's a plea for mercy. Now that's conditioned upon their confession. So let's look at verses 5 to 7. You're looking for what their sins are. And so they said, we have sinned. You might underline at verse 5, uh, remember uh, that you were angry for we have sinned. You might underline for we have sinned. Now, what is it that they have done? Well, verse 5, they're looking for five things right here in verses 5 to 7. And the first thing is that we have sinned and we need to be saved. Verse 6, we are unclean and we're like filthy rags. And we'll try to be delicate here because this is a biblical picture, but this is, this is what the text is talking about. That the filthy rags, it, it is trying to give a disgusting picture of their own righteousness. And if you have the footnote and you have the workbook, you can check that. But if you don't, it basically refers to uh, a woman during a certain period of the month. And the, the filthiness, um, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Um, that would be impure and untouchable according to Luke, uh, Leviticus 15. So I'm trying to be delicate, but that's, that's all I know to say about that. That's, that's the biblical picture. It's, uh, uh, in other words, it's disgusting to God to see their, their efforts at their righteousness. The third thing is we're, that we're like a leaf that the wind takes away. 
We have no stability. We're blown away. And none calls upon your name, verse 7, that no one calls upon your name. No one listens. We sin, and you have hidden your face because of our iniquities, verse 7. So that's the list of the sins that are found there, that we have sinned. So now verses 8 through 12 is a plea for God's mercy. Have mercy on us because we've acknowledged. Look at verse 9 and skipping verse 8. Well, no, I don't want to skip verse 8. That we're like the, the clay and, and you are the potter. Mold us and make us and shape us to be better people. But verse 9 I'm interested in. Do not be furious nor remember, your, uh, remember iniquity forever. In other words, forget our sin. We've acknowledged. We've confessed. And uh, please forgive us of our sin. It is a plea for mercy. Uh, will you restrain? I'm reading it verse 12. Because of these things, Lord, will you hold your peace and afflict us uh, very severely? Um, again, forgive us. That's the plea for mercy. So the plea for mercy, the acknowledgement of sin, and here's where we've sinned now, the Lord's answer, chapter 65. That's where we're headed now, chapter 65. What was the Lord's answer? Um, the Lord's answer is threefold. Um, the Lord's answer is threefold. He said, I will accept those who obey and reject those who disobey. We're going to come back to that. A remnant will be spared and the rest will be destroyed. And then there's a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. That's the answer to that. God have mercy upon us. We have sinned. And we wait for God to answer. And God said, I will have mercy upon those who turn. So, all right, we've got some ground to cover in chapter 65. Um, now in chapter 65... Just uh, in interest of time, verse 1, Isaiah 65, 1 is quoted in Romans 10 and 20. Verse 2 is quoted in 10 and 21, Romans 10, 21. And there the Paul is making the argument, the Gentiles, or the Jews rejected, I mean, the Gentiles accepted God, Isaiah 65, 1. And the Gentiles, uh, and the Jews uh, were begged and plead, pleaded with, and yet they still walked away and uh, he quotes Isaiah 65 too. And that's a sad, sad picture. But, uh, so what happens here? Let's talk about uh, verses 1 to 5. I will accept those who obey. I was sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was found of those who did not seek me. He's talking about Gentiles. And you say, how do you know? Because that's how Paul used it in Romans 10. That's, I'm absolutely certain about that. That was the best commentary I could find, is Paul, by inspiration, said it applied to the Gentiles. Um, then verse 2, I stretched out my hands all day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Who's it talking about? Jews. You say, how do you know? Because Paul said so in Romans 10, 21. And that's how I know that. Um, so the point is, God's going to accept. He'll have mercy upon those who obey, even Gentiles, but he's going to punish those who disobey. Now he mentions their, their sacrifices to idols. They burn incense on altars of brick, verse 3. They eat uh, swine flesh. Um, uh, they have this spirit of being holier than others. And God says, that's like smoke in my nostrils. It burns all day. And so God said this. He can't let this pass. It is written, I'm reading it, verse 6, I will not keep silent, but will repay. In other words, I can't let this stand. I'm going to deal with the sin. I, I've, I've got to deal with that. So what have I seen in verses 1 to 7? I'm going to accept those who obey, and I will reject those who disobey. If it's Gentiles that obey, I'll accept them. If it's Jews that disobey, I'm going to reject them. I'm going to deal with people. 
All right. That gets us through verse 7. Now then, a remnant will be spared and the rest is going to be destroyed. A remnant will be spared and the rest will be destroyed. So let's get three things found in this context, that is in verses 8 to 16. Um, and notice what, what he says. First of all, he tells us that there's going to be a remnant that will be spared. Um, he mentions wine. You might underline at verse 8 that the new wine that's in the cluster, your footnote in your workbook will suggest we, we often think the word wine means it's in, that it is uh, in, uh, intoxicating. The word wine means that it's fermented. This was wine while it was still in the cluster. It's called wine. That's not really the point here. The point is that there's going to be a remnant. Notice at verse uh, 8 he said that I may not destroy them all. In other words, there's going to be a remnant to be spared. God always has, always will have a remnant. And his point is, you don't, you don't gather all the grapes. He said that the, the new wine that's found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it. It's for a blessing. In other words, don't destroy this while it's still in the cluster. Leave it. And there's going to be a remnant. That's the point. That a remnant will be spared. Now then, in verses 13 to 16, or verse 11 and 12, those who forsake the Lord, God said he would indeed destroy. Now notice the phrasing of verse 12, I called and you did not answer. You might notice the same thing is said over in 66 and in verse 4, I called and you didn't answer. Are you answering when God calls? That's a good question. Now let's start at verse 13 through verse 16. Um, there's a sharp contrast drawn between those that serve God and those that forsake Him. Now, here's the contrast, and you're looking for this in your handout. Those that serve God will eat, verse 13, while those that forsake God will be hungry. Now, he's not talking about literally they're going to eat and they're literally going to be hungry. But the point is, I bless those that serve me and those that don't are going to suffer consequence. So those who serve God are going to eat while those who forsake God are hungry. Those who serve God will drink and those who forsake will be thirsty. Those who serve God will rejoice while those who forsake will be ashamed. Over here they sing for joy. Over here they cry for sorrow. They're called by another name, verse 15. I think a reference to the name Christian, I want to think, but it may not be. We've already called attention to that. But their name will be as a curse. And over here, the former troubles will be forgotten. And I put this in italics because this finishing the parallel is not finished, but it's implied. And that is, they have former troubles. In other words, the same, they keep on and on. Uh, what a contrast in those that serve God and those that forsake God. Now, in the interest of time, I know you didn't get all of that, but let's talk about this promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And you might underline at verse um, 17, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The millennialists argue for a, uh, a whole new dispensation in the sense that uh, that's talking about we're going to literally have a new earth and that's where the kingdom is going to be established. That, that's a phrase that just simply means a change in order. So dramatic that it seems like it's a new heaven and new earth. We make that point uh, in the workbook. It's, it's like a, there is a new heaven and new earth. This is the time of the Messiah. Similar language is used with reference to, by the way, uh, heaven being a new heaven and new earth. A change in order, 2 Peter 3 and in verse 13, in Revelation 21 and verse 1. That phrase just means a new order of things, a change so dramatic. Well, the kingdom and of God and the church is so dramatic of a change from the Old Testament economy that it is a new heaven and new earth. And it fits the context to talk about 
something in eternity probably doesn't, uh, at least in my mind, doesn't seem to make sense. All right. So here was the plea for mercy. Here's the confession of sin, and here's the Lord's answer. Now let's go to chapter 66 and finish this up. This is the, the final chapter, and we've got a couple of minutes to go. Final promise and rebuke. What a way to end the book, because that's what the book has been about, a rebuke and a promise. So let's get this. We're just going to have to get a summary of this. There's a contrast here. The Lord blesses those who tremble at His word and punishes those who do not. So notice the, the one upon whom the Lord looks. The one who is a poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. You're looking for that in your handout. The Lord looks on one who is poor, or one translation says humble, and has a contrite heart. Now, again, here's those that, di that disobey. Look at verse 4. I called and no one answered. But they did evil before me and chose that which I did not, in that which I did not delight. Um, God, same thing we've already seen, blesses those who tremble and punishes those who do not. Now, verses 7 to 14, you're looking for some of this information in, in, uh, in that context. Verses 7 to uh, uh, 14, let me get my bearing here. The blessing of those... Um, here is the blessing of those that indeed are um, in the new Zion. And, and the blessing that we're looking for there is uh, found in verses 7 to 14. Um, I'm looking for my page that I've got my info on right here. Here's what I'm looking for. Uh, the five things you're looking for. It's going to be a unique birth. I don't have it subdivided here. It's going to be a unique birth, verses 7 to 9. There will be rejoicing in Zion, is the second thing, verses 10 and 11. There's peace will be extended, peace and tranquility will be like a river, verse 12. Those in Zion will be cared for as a mother cares for her children. Now that's an interesting picture. Uh, you, you'll be bouncing on her knees, the English standard says, at verse 12 and 13. And Zion will flourish like grass that's growing rapidly. In other words, here's the blessings. It's, just, it's, it's going to be a unique birth. It may have reference to the, the rapid spread of the gospel. Uh, so those are the five things you're looking for there. Then we see in verses 15 to 17, God's anger and fury is against idolatry. I think perhaps standing for all forms of rebellion against God. But I'm hurrying to get to this point because our time is gone right here at the end. The glory of God is seen by the world. In other words, the, the thing that was missed by Judah, the strength and the glory of God is going to be declared um, ultimately to the world, and you see that in verses 18, for I know their works and their thoughts, and then he goes on and said that, uh, uh, speaks of the new heaven and new earth again, um, my fame, I'm reading at the end of verse 19, my fame uh, nor my glory, they've not heard not my fame nor my glory, and shall declare my glory among the Gentiles, and in other words, my fame is going to be known among the nations. It's going to go forth. The thing that hasn't been known is the thing that will be known. Now, what a way to end what I think is, is an outstanding and marvelous book. Here's what we've seen. A nation that failed because they didn't put faith in Jehovah. Because they faced a, Syria th a Syrian threat. And then we saw the hope that the promises, uh, that the, the, the prophet gives of the promise of a return from Babylon and ultimately hope in the Messiah, sprinkled throughout the entire book.
Now that's basically what we saw in the book. And so if you don't remember, one last point I'm making and then we'll quit. And we're done with Isaiah. Chapter 31 in verse, verse 1. See if this doesn't summarize what you've just been studying for the last uh, 16 or 17 weeks. Woe to those who go to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they have many horsemen, because they're very strong, who do not look to the Holy One of Israel. That's the point of the book. That's what the book was all about. We'll stop there because we're done. And we'll start with um, Jeremiah chapters 1 to 3 next time.